Freedom HealthWorks is the direct primary care accelerator. We help doctors across the country start fresh in direct primary care. With Freedom HealthWorks, you work with a team, not a checklist. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com and together we can achieve true freedom in direct care. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. Today, we're hitting upon one of my numerous favorite subjects and favorite issues that I see in the marketplace today when we talk to patients and talk to consumers of the healthcare industry, not the necessarily the network or the system, but the industry that is healthcare. And that is this concept that all physicians and really anybody wearing a white coat, anybody wearing a stethoscope are all gonna be the same and you just can pick one from a list and you're gonna be fine. Obviously that is not the case whatsoever. So today we are talking to Dr. Mark Lopatin, a retired rheumatologist who has extensive thoughts and has published a few articles about this subject and many, many more talking about the different types of costs, transparency, and then the scope of practice within medicine. So a very insightful individual, Dr. Lopatin, thanks, Dr. Lopatin, excuse me, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's my pleasure. Now, this concept that people are just so used to having this habit of, I need to go see the doctor, who is in my insurance network? Where is their number? I don't care where they are, what they do. Where does this stem from thinking that the best way to pick a physician is to just go down this list of names? Well, it, it comes from the idea of uh, creating a system and the individuals in the system are not important. The analogy that I used in an article I wrote a few years ago refers to my Philadelphia Eagles. And a few years ago, Chip Kelly, who was the coach of the Eagles, had the idea that the players weren't important. It was his system that was important. And it didn't matter who he had in place for those positions. The system was what mattered. What he did is replace some of the better players with lesser players with the idea that the system worked. Of course, the system failed. He got fired. And the Eagles did not go to the Super Bowl until they put better players into the system. But it's this idea of the commoditization of physicians that all are equal. It ties in with scope of practice. Physicians are easily replaceable. And, uh, you know, the key, the key to healthcare is the physician-patient relationship. And it's not the system in place. It's the physician and the patient together. So if I am an employer of physicians, I am a hospital, so to speak, I'm looking at my team of physicians saying, wow, I'm paying a lot for these really experienced guys. What about these younger ones? Let's just swap them in, swap them out. It's an old trick that a lot of law firms use. You know, you hear people that say, well, I can pay this attorney with five years experience, almost uh, double what I can pay this new guy coming in for roughly the same type of work. Does that type of analogy translate into medical practice? Well, the problem is you're dealing with patients' health. And when you replace physicians with uh, people who are not as experienced, not as well-trained, there's a price you pay for that. And the price may be in a missed case or something along those lines. Um, one of the major issues is scope of practice, whereby physicians are being replaced by physicians assistants and nurse practitioners with considerably less training. And I've heard it said that nurse practitioners can do about 90% of what a physician can do. And, and let's just use that number for a second. When I was in practice, I saw maybe 100 patients a week. 
So that meant that for me, if they can do 90% of what I can do, that means 10% of the time or 10 patients, they cannot do what I can do. 10 patients a week times 50 weeks a year is 500 patients a year that there's a difference in. My practice has 10 physicians in it. And you're talking about 5,000 patients who are getting lesser care. And that's just one practice. Multiply that by the number of practices and there can be a huge difference. Now there are cost savings for that. And the question is, are the savings worth it? And I guess that depends on whether you're one of the 90% or one of the 10%. So taking kind of that commoditization uh, angle and applying that to a lot of the modern day pushes of, I mean, flat out replacing physicians, primary care physicians for the most part with nurse practitioners or even physician assistants, what you're saying is that there are a bunch of people who are going to just kind of fall through the net there. What happens to those 10%? What happens to them? Where do they go for the care or gosh, I, the lack of care, I guess, you know, what, what happens when those 10% of people multiplied by physicians and every day of the year and every week of the year, when they have something wrong, where do they go if they can't get it from that NPPA on that primary care level? The first problem is that those people in the 10% may not recognize they're in the 10%. So they may not be aware that their care is being compromised and their illness can get worse and flare or develop a misdiagnosis or something like that. And again, for the most part, nurse practitioners can do most of what a primary care physician can do, but not all. And that's because of level of training. So those 10% of physicians down the road may, may decide to get another opinion They may go outside their network to see a physician. The nurse practitioner may refer them to a physician if the patient complains enough. Um, But it's not obvious that, like I said, the 90% and the 10% are not well delineated. Um, So you have all kinds of cases whereby uh, a patient suffers because they didn't realize too late that the care they were being provided was not adequate. So it's not a case of an NP or a PA looking at somebody and saying, there's no way I can address this. This is beyond my experience. So they, they look at somebody like that and say, this person is, is, is beyond my experience. I refuse to treat them. I need to send them on to a specialist or somebody like that. You're saying that those people, those 10% people are actually receiving treatment, but it's not necessarily the correct treatment. The patients that the nurse practitioner recognizes is too complicated is not the problem. That's the patient that will be referred to, the, to a physician, a specialist, whatever. They will get the care. The problem is if the nurse practitioner does not realize that it's beyond her realm of expertise or does not recognize a symptom or a sign that could be a clue to a more serious illness. Those are the patients who are going to run into trouble because they're going to stay with the nurse practitioner. And again, until either the illness gets worse or something else happens. Keep in mind that, you know, for some nurse practitioners, I'm not so much talking about the nurse practitioners who've been out there for 20 years, 30 years, who have years of experience, but there are many nurse practitioners who are fresh out of training who had maybe 500 hours of clinical training, if that, and may not know, you know, some of the basics. I mean, I see some of these things on social media where they're asking what kind of antibiotics to use. How do they balance psychiatric medicines? These are the, the patients who see these nurse practitioners newly minted who are at risk because they may not know what they don't know. And that's just a fascinating thing to me because whenever I think of physician commoditization, what, you know, what I go to is, you know, like I said, choosing from your insurance plan and seeing Dr. XYZ, I'm going to call down the list. 
I'm going to see whoever has the uh, uh, whoever can see me um, in the in the shortest amount of wait time, and then you apply this whole thing to almost primary care commoditization, where now a lot of states and and you might have the more recent figure, but I was thinking you know close to you know 30 states now have um, independent practice laws on the books where nurse practitioners can set up independent practices free of oversight from a physician. So you know, what are your opinions on the, that type of a movement as we continue to move forward, knowing that primary care is very, very important, and we've gotten away from that as a country. You know, we rely on specialists almost more than we rely on our primary care physicians and, and, and medical uh, experts there. But is that going to have some unintended consequences of trying to equate PAs and Ps to MDs and DOs at the primary care level? It's a significant concern because what you're seeing is a lot of, uh, not just the commoditization, but the corporatization. And you've got a lot of corporate entities, some of the uh, pharmacy benefit managers are combining with pharmacies and insurers to produce minute clinics and so forth and so on. Uh, and they're being staffed by nurse practitioners. Um, you know, and that's generally okay if you're going for a cut finger or, you know, a sore throat, generally speaking, not all the time. Um, for the most minor ailments, that's it's not an issue, but every once in a while something will be missed. But it's the idea of trying to control the healthcare dollar. These people can be employed at less expense and billing can be the same. In fact, uh, a recent executive order, I mean, it hasn't come into play, but an executive order from President Trump in October suggested that uh, there should be no difference in pay between physicians and nurse practitioners. So now an entity like CVS can hire nurse practitioners they can generate income the same as if a physician were working there, but they only have to pay the nurse practitioner a lesser salary. They can make more money off of this. So a lot of the commoditization comes from those whose major goal is to control the healthcare dollar. And patients don't know any of this. They, they're, the transparency issue is, is critical because somebody comes in wearing a white coat, the patient assumes they're a doctor, may not know enough to ask, what is your level of expertise? What is your level of training? There's a big difference between uh, somewhere between 10 to 15,000 hours as a physician and maybe 500 to 1,000 hours as a nurse practitioner. So the, the um, patient may have no idea the qualifications of the person taking care of them. That's a great concern. That's a huge concern. So translate that into a real world example. I know you have a great story about a hospital using kind of the lower level medical professionals to take after our, you know, surgical acute, give our listeners a little bit of insight into how what you just said plays into this is what it means in the real world. Well, this is an issue that occurred at a local hospital that I got involved in simply because uh, uh, on the board of trustees for the state medical society. And somehow my name got called out on this and I had to investigate and look into it. But what happened basically was a local hospital had uh, on-call surgeons at night so that if you were in the hospital and you had a surgical case, say you were a routine gallbladder, and that night you had a surgical emergency, something bled or something like that, the person they would call in to see you at nighttime at midnight was a surgeon, someone who was trained, someone who had gone to medical school, and so forth. The hospital decided to replace that in-house on-call surgeon with uh, physician's assistants who did not have the same level of training, and with the idea that they could investigate the problem initially, and if there was a problem, and if they recognized the problem, they would call the on-call physician who would then come in from home to address the problem. 
So there's a lot of questions with that. Obvious ones, does the physician's assistant have the level of training to recognize the surgical emergency? Uh, they didn't do a surgical uh, uh, residency. Um, how much experience does the physician's assistant have? Some of the physician's assistants, I was told, were newly graduated. So not people who had been in the field for 10 years or so. So that was an issue. The delay, it's one thing when you're in the hospital and you get called in. It's another thing when you're at home at three o'clock in the morning and you get called in the hospital. It's not the same mentality. You're not already there. You have to get dressed and go. And that's an issue. Mm -hmm. But one of the issues that I brought out was the idea of transparency and the idea of does a patient who goes to that hospital who's going in for elective surgery know that if there's an on-call, if there's an emergency after hours, that the per first person will be, that will be tending to them is not a trained surgeon. It will be a physician's assistant. And do they have the right to know? And if they know, should they be allowed to make a choice? And one of the big things with healthcare now is that patients oftentimes don't know what their choices are. And if they, even if they do, they don't have a choice. And, you know, as for me, I would want to know that. I want to know who's taking care of me, you know, in, in those terms. If it's a nurse practitioner, I want to know who's supervising them and so forth. So transparency issues and patients not knowing what's going on becomes a very big issue. Right. And now, now you got my you know, wheels turning because I'm looking at this thinking it can't just be about dollars and cents. If I'm uh, running a hospital, I said, hey, I'll replace all of our doctors on the midnight call with PAs. And we're going to lower our expenses. But what's the reaction to that? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Am I, in that case, putting the hospital and putting the physicians that we wake up and call, am I putting them at more risk of something going wrong? And is that worth the trade-off economically? It's a balancing act. It is a balancing act between the threat of malpractice and the dollars saved. Uh, it's not strictly about the dollars, um, you know, in that regard. I mean, I don't think hospitals want to cut corners to such a degree that they compromise care. They don't want to turn a square into a circle, but they do want to cut corners a little bit, still maintain the shape of a square without, you know, completely losing it. But again, it comes down to cost savings and hospitals are tightly budgeted right now. I mean, there, there's a lot of problems there keeping, you know, their heads above water and so forth. So any place where they can cut some costs Without compromising care too much, I put that phrase in quotation marks, how much is too much, they're going to try to do that if they can. And again, you're seeing it in a number of places, minute clinics I alluded to, hospitals, and so forth, to try to still administer care without having to pay for the expertise. And basically, the message that comes out from this is if nurse practitioners are equivalent to doctors... If the system is what matters, as I alluded to initially, what's the rationale for medical school? Why would anybody go to medical school? Well, let me put that question back on you. I'm sure you have some thoughts on that one. Why, why would I, if I'm just doing my pre-med education in, in undergrad and looking at studying for the MCAT, knowing that I want to go into primary care, I would say that, you know, somebody might be listening and say, well, primary care is not for MDs and DOs anymore. If you want to do primary care, just go to, just go be an MP, be a PA. So what is the incentive for very educated, very talented, very incredible caring people in our communities to go pursue primary care uh, specialties as MDs and DOs? There's not a lot. There's not a lot if this movement takes hold throughout the country 
there really isn't a lot. You can do the same thing with much less training. You don't have to go into as much debt. And the idea being that, that for someone who goes to medical school and does a primary care residency or even an internal medicine residency, uh, the message is that most of what you've learned is superfluous. You don't need it. I don't agree with that. Right. Um, and, and so take that and apply that to what you were saying before on how this is potentially dangerous. And, and then we have certain degrees like a, um, I believe a doctor of, of nursing practice. Did I get that right? Yeah, a doctor of nursing practice is someone who's who's attained a graduate degree, um, gone on to attain a doctorate, but they're not a medical doctor, but they will go into the room and introduce themselves as I am doctor so-and-so, and they have the right to do that. But by the same token, in the name of transparency, patients should know what they are a doctor of. How often do you see that actually scenario play out where they walk in and somebody just hears the word doctor? And if you're not in a academic collegiate setting, you're going to assume that this is the uh, this is a person who has achieved the highest level of experience schooling in the medical community. Many patients have no idea. They have no idea. I've seen it in my practice. We employ nurse practitioners under our supervision and physician's assistant, and they were at times thought to be the doctor. There still is a bias against women in that field. A woman walks in there thought to be a nurse rather than a doctor. They're not afforded the proper respect in that regard. But many people have no idea, especially in the hospital setting, who the person is that's treating them. And they don't know enough to ask what's your, or they're afraid to ask, what's your training level? Who are you? Kind of insulting if you think about it. You're afraid of insulting someone by asking that question. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we know that physicians have enough to deal with just from the uh, workplace aspects of self. But a lot of this, unfortunately, is self-inflicted. Where are the doctor's group saying, reaching out and saying, whoa, 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 there is no way in hell that you can equate my 5,000, 10,000 hours of experience and education with somebody who's just getting 500. And now you guys are trying to make us similar, you know, through, I guess, what are political and marketing campaigns. Where's the outcry from the physicians? Well, there is an outcry. I mean, I can tell you, you know, as a trustee of the Medical Society, that's been one of our foremost issues is fighting scope of practice. However, realistically, doctors as a whole are not lobbyists. We tend to stay in our lane in terms of treating our patients. After hours, as individual doctors, we don't tend to raise our voices. The medical societies do. The nurse practitioners are much, much, much better at lobbying for this mm -hmm. and making their arguments as to why this should be an issue. Now, legislators, I mean, a medical society, the AMA, can't, AMA has also spoken out on this issue strongly, but a medical society can't make the rules. It's up to the legislators to make the rules. And the legislators don't hear as much from the doctors. They hear from the medical societies, but they don't hear from individual doctors as much. And they're hearing all over the place from nurse practitioners and their you know, chief organization, the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. So it becomes a matter of who's raising their voices. And physicians right now, in my experience, are so beaten down by so many other issues, maintenance of certification, prior authorization, macro, MIPS, and so forth. There are so many battles to be fought. There's a collective depression which is set in amongst physicians, and we're just not fighting that battle as well as we should. Well, that's a shame <laughs> to hear that. So putting, putting your, uh, your NP hat on, so let, let's, let's switch it up a little bit. You're an advocate of NPs being able to practice independently and equating the care 
uh, and the abilities of NPs, you know, right out of school with those of, of physicians just phys- finishing a residency. What are you arguing and saying that this is a good idea? Where are they coming from? Well, the main argument occurs in rural areas. That's not a valid argument, but let me go through the argument. The argument is in rural areas, and I can speak to Pennsylvania, there are many nurse, there are not physicians in the area, there are nurse practitioners there who have a collaborative agreement with a physician who's not basically watching them or supervising them at all. They are basically practicing independently as is, except they have a supervisory agreement that they must pay for. And their argument is, if I'm seeing these patients on my own, my supervising physician is 100 miles away, I'm basically on my own, why should I have to pay X amount of dollars to a physician who's not supervising me? I should have independent practice, so I don't have to pay that $1,000. And the answer to that is, well, the physician should be supervising it. You know, physicians sometimes want to make an argument both ways. We don't want nurse practitioners to have independent practice, but we also don't want to supervise them. Mm-hmm. And the problem also lies in employee physicians who are forced to supervise nurse practitioners, maybe against their will, maybe too many, and so forth. They don't have a say in it. And if they don't want to do it, they lose their job. So the arguments are, we basically can do most of what you can do. And we're smart enough to know when a patient needs referral. So it's not that big a deal, except sure. for, of course, the patient, the nurse practitioners who are fresh out of school, who don't have the experience and may not know what they don't know. Sure. I understand that. So it's, it's trying to solve an issue that is prevalent across the United States is, a lack of options for rural healthcare. Is that the bottom line? Is that, is that the problem uh, addressed on, presented in a way that we can digest it? That's part of the problem. The problem with that argument is that nurse practitioners, it's not been shown that nurse practitioners are more inclined to go to a rural area than physicians will. Nurse practitioners, physicians go where the patients are. The other issue that gets raised is that there's a shortage of primary care physicians and as nurse practitioners, we can help fill the gap. We can provide some of the care. Even if we can't provide all of the care that a physician can provide, we can provide most of it, and that's better than no care. Interesting. And that's the okay. other argument. So, so let's, let's, let's follow that problem here and you know, see if we can come up with our own solutions or, or ideas there. So if we're looking at this and states are pushing, you, know, you brought up Pennsylvania, uh, we're in Indianapolis, so there's a lot of you know need for rural health care, and, and I understand it, and as well as you know urban health care as well. Um, a lot of the socioeconomic uh, indicators are very, very similar to urban and then you know rural areas. What happened to rural physicians? Let's start there. Why is there this lack of health care options in the first place? Rural areas are not as attractive as suburban or urban areas in terms of facilities there in terms of entertainment, in terms of, you know, other lifestyle things, there may not be as much in a rural area as there is in a suburban or urban area, just in terms of sporting teams, in terms of, of lifestyle things that, that people tend to enjoy. So, um, you're, yeah, so what, what I'm hearing is that, you know, they're just not as attractive areas to live, but I mean, that wasn't always the case. So you look at, look at the small town uh, physicians making house calls, you know, what happened to the viability of small town medical practice? Well, a lot of it has been taken over by the corporatization uh, where, I mean, you don't have physicians making those house calls anymore. They're too busy meeting the demands of the insurers and the government 
in terms of data they must provide in their charts. So that takes a lot of time. You know, physicians spend more time documenting now um, than they used to. And the physician-patient relationship isn't what it used to be because of all the mandates and the guidelines and the, the macro and the MIPS that physicians have to document. I've made the crack sometimes that I'm no longer an MD. My uh, degree is, is a DEO, not a DO, a DEO, data entry operator. And I become a glorified data entry operator because of all the things that I have to put into a chart to justify what I've done. And the reason I have to justify it is because there's an insurer who's going to reimburse me for it. And if I've not justified it appropriately, I don't get reimbursed appropriately. Mm -hmm. So again, kind of what I'm hearing you saying is that there were so many layer upon layer of oh data entry and so many hoops to jump through that rule practice became inoperable. Uh, In many cases, yes. And it's just fascinating. And I had a feeling, obviously, that you were going to you know, say that. And we see that still with consolidation of hospital systems when they pack up or close down a small, uh, small hospital. Or, you know, this is my favorite because I shake my head at this when a doctor tells me that a hospital system is buying out their practice and then come to realize that in no way, shape or form was a business transaction created. They just hired that physician and took other patients. And I'm saying, this is not selling your business. This is, <laughs> this is taking a new job and letting go of all that independence and all the, all the, uh, the great relationships you built with the community. So that's another thing that just drives me nuts is when doctors say they sell their practice. And it's like, you don't even know what that means. You did not get a multiple on your revenue or multiple on your, your, uh, your profit there. You just signed a signing bonus. And then that comes with stipulations too. So, I mean, is that it? Is that, is that an oversimplification of where rural healthcare just evaporated? It's not just the hospitals, it's the insurers as well. We've created an illusion for the American public. You know, when you think about insurance, you think about car insurance. Car insurance covers an accident. It doesn't cover your oil change. It doesn't cover your gas. It doesn't cover your day-to-day expenses for your car. However, in healthcare, we've created a world whereby the expectation is that all healthcare will be covered primary care visits, uh, medicines, everything's covered, comprehensive care. That's not insurance. That's a prepaid health plan. Mm -hmm. And we've exchanged that idea. Well, with that comes the insertion of the insurance company in between the physician and the patient. And they're going to dictate the rules by which you can play by that you need to be on this drug as opposed to that drug. And you need to see this doctor as opposed to that doctor. And you need to get an x-ray before you can get an MRI because they're the ones who are putting the bill. So if I'm, you know, following that vein again, if I'm a patient and say, oh, this person's that I'm seeing for my medical care isn't an MD or a DO, I'd expect a price break. <laughs> Am I going to get that price break? <laughs> You're not going to get it because the argument will be if it's a hospital or a CVS that's employing that nurse practitioner, they're going to tell you that the care provided is just as good because that serves their purpose to give you that message. Unless there's a problem unless there's malpractice or something, a misdiagnosis or something, and that usually doesn't happen. But unless that happens, it's usually not an issue. It's just when it does happen, it can be catastrophic. Yeah, absolutely. So no price breaks. Um, I, I don't understand from a patient standpoint why somebody wouldn't be asking questions and be satisfied with seeing a mid-level medical professional rather than a physician if I'm not going to get a discount on it. Well, because one, the advertising that's been out there, I mean, if you've seen the ads for nurse practitioners, 
uh, one of the, the classic ads, and this was brilliant on their part, was heart of nurse, brain of a doctor, implying that they're more caring than a doctor, but they're just as smart as a doctor. And it's not a question of smart of being smart. It's not a question of intelligence. Nurse practitioners are very intelligent people. It's a matter of training. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference. And they won't mention lesser training. So it's a part of it is a marketing campaign. You know, it's not out there. It's not out there that this, this is an issue. So many patients don't even think about it. They're not even aware of it. Are there, um, and I'm sure they exist. So let me know if you know any of these off the top of your head, but I, you know, talking again about going back to the rural healthcare, and obviously there's a huge crisis in America right now dealing with opioids and addiction. Are there any stats that say an MD, DO, or MPs and PAs when they have prescribing power, what are they prescribing? And is that the right call for those people? I mean, are they trying to combat an opioid crisis? If, if you get my, get my, my question. Yeah, there's there. tons of data there. I would refer your listeners to a book called Patients at Risk by uh, Narana Agba and Rebecca Barnhard, which is extremely well-documented with over 400 references to statistics and data as to a number of this stuff. There's no way I could recite it off the top of my head, but it's a wonderful book that goes through this very problem of how this came to be what is happening, what the data is, what the statistics show, you know, how do you measure outcomes? Is the outcomes measured by the number of malpractice suits? Are outcomes measured by uh, need for hospitalizations? What are the studies that are out there? And there's a ton of studies out there. Many of them have been sponsored by agencies that have a bias towards nurse practitioners. So what exactly do you measure? How do you tell that the care is equivalent or not equivalent in that regard? Well, it depends on what you measure and so forth. Um, there's lots of anecdotal stories about patients who suffered and so forth and so on. But I, I highly recommend that book to your listeners because that'll give them much more data and information than they could hope to do in a, in a podcast like this. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and I guess what I was looking for, you know, there are nurse practitioners practicing independently, writing more scripts for opioids versus physicians. And is that yeah, there is data there that shows, yeah, there is data that shows they are writing more scripts for opioids. There are more, more referrals uh, to physicians. There are more things that they can handle that, that a physician might be able to handle. They're not saving the system money. Where they're saving the system is for those who employ them don't have to pay them as much. And they're pushing, in fact, for equal pay now with physicians, which if that comes into place, then there would be no rationale for a hospital to hire a nurse practitioner with lesser training if they have to pay them the same amount that they pay a physician. I mean, it's just like anything, anything else, you know, when you go to buy a car, you can buy a Mercedes Benz and spend, you know, a lot of money for it. You can buy a Yugo and spend a lot less money for it. Both vehicles will, you know, have four wheels and they have a steering wheel and you can drive you to where you want to go. But the difference is when you buy a car, you make the decision what you're buying. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is the only field of endeavor where the consumer of a service and the purchaser of the service are two different entities. So you want the Mercedes-Benz, your insurer wants you to have the Yugo. And usually the insurance company is the one who dictates what you will drive. Yeah, and not to uh, mention that, that Mercedes and that Yugo. Poor Yugo getting picked on in our, in our podcast here. Never, knew, never saw it coming. They're priced the same. They say, well, you can have this luxury car or this thing that you know, might get you where you need to go. And oh, by the way, you're going to pay, uh, you can pay an arm and a leg for this thing. 
no pun intended, uh, in a medical sense here, but it's the same thing. And or they're going to say, well, we're not going to tell you what what the price is, right? So you don't know what you're getting. There's you no don't know. cost transparency. Exactly. We talked about transparency in terms of experience of the person providing the care. There's no transparency in terms of cost. So an MRI at one place could be three thousand dollars, and another place it could be a thousand dollars. Right. Right, right. And so, you know, I, gosh, I'm just going off. My wheels are turning now because you, you got me kind of fired up here. So I, I'm looking at physicians and saying, you know, if you're tired of being treated like a commodity in this hospital system, what in the world are you doing in the hospital still? Are we going to see a resurgence of private practice because physicians finally decide to act and say, no, I, I've put myself and my family through a ton of training, school, debt, stress. I refuse to be treated the same as somebody who took, um, you know, far less time out of their lives to be able to do this. I'm leaving the hospital. I'm going to start my own practice. Do we see something like that? I hope so, but I'm not optimistic. And that's setting you have the restrictive covenants, which come into play, which may force people to move completely out of the city that they're in. So I'm outside Philadelphia. You know, I can't imagine if I worked for a hospital that all of a sudden I have to move to another city. I've been in Philadelphia all my life. Let me ask this a different way. Is this going to force physicians to start reading their contracts and say, no, I'm not going to sign this with this non-compete? I hope so. And that restrictive covenant is an issue uh, that's being addressed. But the response then is, well, then go find another job. Go work for some. And there are, there are some perks to being an employed physician in terms of they pay your malpractice, they give you an office and so forth. But the problem is you sacrifice your independence. And a lot of people don't realize how much you sacrifice your independence, how much that means when somebody wants to employ you. Absolutely. Not to mention they're capping your you know, salary, your take-home pay because profit is okay. It's okay to make money, you know, especially uh, in any type of a business. And we tell that to physicians we work with on the Freedom HealthWorks side when they, when they start up their own independent direct care practices. And it's an interesting concept. Some people get it, some people don't. Um, but very educated, very experienced people. There's a reason why physicians are always, are, are usually well compensated and, you know, we, we mentioned a little earlier this, this concept of a physician shortage. And, you know, I got to say my piece about that, that there's always going to be a shortage of physicians. There will always be a shortage of physicians. If we had an overabundance of physicians, nobody would go be a doctor anymore because it would pay $15, $20 an hour. And that is just simple economics. That's, That's just supply and demand, right? You know, there's a reason why we pay physicians who are the best and brightest in our communities 150, 175, 200, 300, 400 thousand dollars because there are very few people that could do that job, and they they like to throw these you know physician shortages of every doctor needs to see five thousand people, and it's just it's just not possible. And when you think about what you have to go through to be a physician in terms of the training, the years of training, uh, you know, not the loss of sleep during residency, you know, it's very rigorous. You typically end up hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And that's part of the problem. You're, you're right on target with that. The other issue that I want to allude to, though, in terms of physicians leaving hospitals, one of the big things that I see, and I, I just wrote an article on this, is on apathy. And just the collective depression that I see with physicians, it's too hard to fight back. Call it burnout, whatever you want to call it. But there are so many forces at play on physicians in terms of the data they must enter, in terms of prior auth, in terms of insurance mandates, in terms of scope of practice, in terms of maintenance of certification, 
there are so many things that are being heaped upon us that for many physicians, it's all they can do to go to work in the morning at eight o'clock or whatever time and get done at six o'clock and they're done and they can't invest any more time in advocacy or fighting the battles. And that's one of the strategies in terms of the corporatization of healthcare is if you make the obstacles too great to overcome, then you don't get any resistance and you can implement what you want in terms of the number of patients that patients that physicians need to see and so forth. Well, look at when a physician leaves a hospital, leaves employment, look at how they are treated by the hospital. Those patients are now the hospital patients, like they're actually mm-hmm. owning somebody, which is incredibly offensive to anybody who's you know, found a great relationship with a physician and trusts that person. Incredibly offensive to go in one day and get a letter that says, hey, your physician vanished off the face of the earth. They don't work here anymore. And we're not going to tell you where they are. I'm just like, I pull my hair out thinking, how in the hell is that even remotely ethical, bordering on legal to interrupt that continuity of care when somebody has established like that? Continuity of care is not as important. I mean, it is to me, and it is a critical aspect, but it's not viewed that way anymore. And in fact, I read recently that you know, when you look at younger patients in terms of seeing a physician and a nurse practitioner, their number one thing they're looking for in healthcare is convenience. Mm-hmm. They're not looking for expertise. They're looking for convenience. They're not looking for continuity of care. They're looking for convenience. So if that pharmacy down the road can give them their flu shot, they're going to do that rather than have an established relationship. That established relationship with the doctor is not as important. And hospitals take advantage of that. But yeah, I agree with you in that regard. Furthermore, when you talk about hospitals dictating care, they're going to dictate where you can send your patients. So they call it leakage. The idea being that if I'm part of a hospital system, I'm obligated to refer my patient to another physician within the system, even if I think there's a physician outside the system who would be better suited for that patient's needs. I'm an independent, or I was an independent practitioner, and I still was affiliated with a hospital, and that hospital tried to put pressure on me. They have no leverage with me. They want to put pressure on me to refer within the system. Now, I I know that is 100% illegal to do. You cannot do that, but... Hey, we didn't do that. We just made a suggestion. You know, we're saying we would like you to, you know, so you always have that fallback. I was just kidding. It was just a joke kind of mentality. Um, But there's no doubt there's pressure. And, you know, in some settings, there may be certain financial ramifications of referring in or out of the system, you know, and so forth. It's just slimy. You know, that's the only thing I can describe is just just slimy, underhanded type of tactic. So I want to, I want to, you know, close out here uh, with what does that look like from the patient standpoint when, you know, they hear this and see, well, yeah, I really do want to see a physician. I, I do want to follow that physician no matter where they're working because I trust them. What, what do patients do? How can they get involved and how can they become advocates? Patients need to become more assertive. You know, the, the old mentality of the doctor is God and whatever he says goes still exists. It is evolving. Patients are becoming more assertive, but they need to be more assertive, not just in terms of their healthcare, in terms of the medicines that they want or, or their diagnosis or getting a second opinion. They need to be more assertive in terms of the actual care, you know, what they're getting um, from a doctor, from a hospital, and so forth. And the way you do that is patients need to be educated and they need to be educated one at a time. Um, they need to not be intimidated by physicians but they've, been, they've grown up being intimidated. Now, the newer generation, that's not quite the same thing, and that will evolve and will change. But people need to recognize that 
doctors are people, hospitals are made up of people, you know, and they can't dictate to you, you need to open your mouth and speak up in terms of what you want. If I can provide it, I will. If I can't, I'll tell you why I can't provide it. But there needs to be a dialogue. We need to have a mutual understanding. As I always say to my patients, I'm the physician. I have expertise in medicine. You are the patient. You have expertise in you. And we have to combine my knowledge of medicine with your knowledge of you to come up with a plan that works for you. It's not just me dictating to you what this is the medicine you will go on. Well, we're going to give you this medicine. It's an injectable medicine. I can't do needles. Well, then we got to talk about that. We got to work together to try to figure out an alternative that works. But patients are too submissive these days, unfortunately, still. And that is a that's a that's a kind of a beautiful closing remark that people are all different. Even commoditizing patient care is a big problem, not just treating all physicians and, and medical professionals the same, treating all patients the same and you know, population health numbers is what works for this person, probably not gonna work for this person over here. So it seems like it is a, uh, a symptom that is pervasive in the entire healthcare industry. But Dr. Mark Lopatin, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your stories and sharing your experiences with us. Chris, thank you so much for having me. I very much appreciate it. That's gonna do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. Once again, I'm Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Interested in saving money on medical expenses? Coral is a healthcare marketplace and referral platform that helps direct primary care physicians, specialists, and medical plans find each other and work together at an affordable and transparent price. Save time and save money by utilizing the transparent direct contract model from Coral. To learn more, please visit coral.io. At Green Imaging, we provide diagnostic imaging procedures that include MRIs, CT scans, and x-rays for half of the average price in a health plan. Most people don't realize that the most expensive place to get an MRI is right down the hall from the prescribing doctor. This is because 70% of doctors are now employed or subsidized by our hospital systems. When we get an imaging exam at a hospital-owned imaging facility, the cost of care is three to seven times more expensive than it is at an independent imaging facility. There is a better choice that can save you up to 65% or more. That choice is green imaging. In most hospitals, there are 16 administrators for every single doctor. This creates an unnecessary burden on the price tag. By removing this excess, Green Imaging provides diagnostic services typically at one-third of the price or less. Check us out at greenimaging.net. The new administration has big plans for your health insurance, changes that can limit your choices. The Affordable Care Act created a one-size-fits-all plan. Healthcare is not a one-size-fits-all problem. The premise of the ACA is that coverage equals care. It does not. This is Eric Wilson from ISA Health Incorporated, and I recently saved a family in their 50s almost $600 per month with our free market plan. Act now. Protect yourself with a plan that cannot be canceled. This is a nationwide PPO plan, which allows you to pick your doctors and hospitals. Start saving 30 to 60% today. If you are self-employed, purchase your own health insurance, or are uninsured, you can lock in a private plan managed by you, not the government. Call me, Eric Wilson, an expert with 17 years experience at 888-448-5370. That's 888-448-5370. Or go to iSellHealth.com. That's iSellHealth.com. 
a free market, affordable approach to healthcare. I look forward to speaking with you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.